Well, Larry was a, a newspaper photographer who was running late to meet a plane on a country runway that was meant to take him out on a job. When he finally got to the runway, Larry climbed into the first plane he, he saw and yelled, OK, let's go. The pilot took off and they were soon in the air. All right, said Larry. Now let's fly down low over those trees down there so I can take some pictures. What do you mean? asked the pilot. A little annoyed, Larry looked at the pilot and answered, I need to take some photos for the newspaper, of course. So come on, let's, let's go, let's go. Well, there was a long silence before the pilot finally asked in a shaky voice, you mean you're not my flight instructor? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, a nasty case of mistaken identity. <laughs> and we've all done it, haven't we? Mistaken someone's identity. Grabbed the hand of someone who was not our mum or dad when we were little. Or called somebody by the wrong name. Gotten siblings mixed up. Or put our arm around our spouse only to look and see it was somebody else. <laughs> was that just me? <laughs> I think we've all mistaken somebody's identity at one time or another. And, and usually it's embarrassing, but no big deal. But then sometimes it can have big consequences, as in the case of Larry and the trainee pilot. But there is one person's identity that would never, ever want to get wrong, and that is Jesus Christ. Because to get his identity wrong would have massive consequences for us. Not just for now... Uh, but into eternity. Today we continue our series on ancient debates. And today we're going to hear about some important historical disputes surrounding the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll see how the early Christian church worked hard to ensure that Jesus' true identity didn't end up distorted on account of four great heresies or, or false teachings. Four heresies that arose one after the other and which were addressed in four major church councils. The first being the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 AD. This council arose in response to the teaching of a bloke called Arius. Now Arius was a church leader who denied the doctrine of the Trinity. He taught that only the Father is God, and not the Son, Jesus. According to Arius, Jesus, Jesus wasn't eternal. Rather, he had a beginning, uh, created as, as the first and finest of all God's creatures and, and the one through whom God then made everything else in the universe. And so for Arius, Jesus wasn't God, but a kind of super creature sent from God. Arius's Jesus kind of reminds me a bit of uh, Superman. You know, a very special, powerful creature, but a creature nonetheless. It's the same understanding of Jesus that's still taught by a number of cults today, uh, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Christadelphians, for example. And, and there's a form of it seen in modern liberal teaching too. In fact, uh, I, I clearly remember having a conversation uh, years ago now, out in the church car park uh, with a, a woman who'd left this church 
because Jeff was preaching that Jesus is God rather than just a special teacher sent from God. Well, at the Council of Nicaea, all the leaders of the early church met to discuss Arius' doctrine. And in the end, the council deemed it to be at odds with the teachings handed down from the apostles. And as a result, they wrote the first draft of what we know as the Nicene Creed, where Jesus is described in terms like God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. You see, all deliberate statements proclaiming the divinity of Jesus. And in the end, Arius was excommunicated and exiled, and all his works were ordered to be confiscated and burnt. But did this first council get it right? Were they right in opposing Arius's teachings? Well, as we look at the Bible, I think we can confidently say that yes, they did get it right. Because it's abundantly clear from the Bible that Jesus really is God. Uh, we see it clearly taught in passages like, like Titus 2.13, where Christians are said to be waiting for the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And in uh, John 20, 28, where Thomas sees the risen Jesus and declares, my Lord and my God. And Jesus accepts his worship and doesn't correct him. And then there are the myriad of Bible passages where Jesus is shown to have the attributes of God. He has divine knowledge, he, he, he's all-powerful, he, 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 he has God's authority, he, he's the creator, and he's eternal too. And so in John 1.1, we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. See, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is God eternal. And so, yes, the Council of Nicaea was right in refuting the teachings of Arius and in confirming the truth that Jesus is truly God. But ironically, it was out of the rulings of Nicaea that the next big heresy emerged. A heresy that was addressed at the second major council, the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. Now, this council met in response to the teaching of a church leader named Apollinaris. Apollinaris was actually one of the good guys who, who had, had opposed the teachings of Arius. But in his eagerness to emphasise the divinity of Jesus, Apollinaris went too far the other way and ended up discarding Jesus' humanity. And so Apollinaris taught that whilst Jesus had a human body, his mind, that is his intellect and will, wasn't human. Otherwise he might have sinned. And so according to Apollinaris, what happened is that the divine mind of God the Son came in and took over Jesus' human body in Mary's womb. Apollinaris' view of Jesus kind of reminds me a bit of Edgar in the first Men in Black movie. You know Edgar? The man whose body was, was, was taken over by, by an alien life form. 
uh, after which poor old Edgar, Edgar could hardly be described as human. Now, I'm not aware of any strict Apollinarians around today, but I think at times there are still hints of his teaching around the place. Uh, like, for example, when we use potentially misleading phrases like, uh, uh, Jesus is God in a body. Or, or Jesus, Je Jesus is God with skin on. You heard phrases like that? Phrases that are potentially misleading uh, because they diminish Jesus' true and full humanity, which was so much more than just skin. And we also come across hints of Apollinarianism in certain beloved Christmas carols too. Take away in a manger, for example. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. You know, what kind of human baby doesn't cry when it's woken up by mooing cows? I've had little babies, okay? I know you do everything you can to get them to sleep. And then when you do, you, you tiptoe around the place. You, and, and the phone rings. It's all over, Red Rover. Where, where? See, it's a romanticised view of Jesus that dilutes his true, his true humanity. Or then there's Silent Night, where we sing that there were radiant beams from thy holy face. And they weren't. <laughs> the only thing radiating from little baby Jesus <laughs> were all the, the, the normal smells that emit from a normal human baby. Again, you see the carol accentuates and romanticises Jesus' Jesus's divinity at the expense of his humanity. Well, in the end, the Council of Constantinople ruled against Apollinaris, denouncing both him and his teaching <laughs> and affirming that whilst Jesus is truly God, they said he's also truly human. But did this council get it right? Well, when we look at the Bible, it's obvious that, yes, they too got it right. Because the Bible is clear that Jesus is truly human. So we see that Jesus had a real human body. You think about it, he was born, he, he grew taller, he, he, he felt tired, he, he got thirsty and hungry, he became physically weak, he died. And even after his resurrection, he still had a real human body. And we see in the Bible that he had real human emotions as well. We're told that on various occasions, he marveled. Uh, he, he, we, we read that he, at, some time, at one time, his soul, he said his soul was, was, was sorrowful even to death. He says that we, we read that he's, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He even weeps on a couple of occasions. And, a, and contrary to Apollinaris' teaching, we see that Jesus had a real human mind too. And so in Luke 2.52, we read that Jesus grew in wisdom. You see, his, his human mind kept developing as his body grew. And so, yes, the Council of Constantinople was right in rejecting the teachings of Apollinaris. 
and in confirming the truth that Jesus is truly human as well as truly God. But now, of course, the obvious question was how on earth could Jesus be both, both God and human at the same time? Well, as it turns out, it was a question that resulted in two equally wrong answers. The first of which was addressed at the third major council, the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. Uh, This council formed in response to the teaching of a church leader named Nestorius. Now, Nestorius taught that Jesus was, in fact, two persons. There was was Jesus, the man, who was co-joined with God, the Word. According to Nestorius, there was the the closest possible conjunction between Jesus the man and God the word. They were were totally united in purpose and will. But when all was said and done, they remained two persons. One with a divine nature and one with a human nature. And Nestorius' view of Jesus kind of reminds me a bit of a pantomime horse. You know, where there are two individuals in in the same body, each working together for the the same end, but still two individuals. The story just couldn't bring himself to accept the idea that the Virgin Mary gave birth to God. In the story's own words, I could not call a baby two or three months old God. How does a newborn baby keep the world spinning? And so by dividing Jesus' humanity and divinity, he was able to conclude that it was Jesus, the man, who was born of Mary and who was co-joined with God, the Word, at, at some later time. Now, there are apparently still some hints of Nestorius' teachings in uh, the Assyrian church today, so I'm reliably informed. And, and apparently that's why over the centuries it has sometimes been labelled the Nestorian church. But at times I, I do also detect the odd, unintentional, I'm sure, Nestorian-like comment, even from among the good folk here at Chatswood Presbyterian Church. Usually around Christmas time, when we hang that, that banner out the front, You know, the one which invites people to celebrate the birth of God. Celebrate the birth of God. And on occasion, I have been asked the question, how can we say it's the birth of God? We we can't say that, can we? Well, according to the rulings of the Council of Ephesus, if anyone does not confess that Jesus Christ is God in truth, and therefore that the Holy Virgin is the Mother of God, For she bore in a fleshly way the word of God become flesh. Let him be anathema. In other words, let him be cursed by God. Now, I haven't quite been able to bring myself (laughs) to call down curses on uh, those who question our Christmas sign. (laughs) But according to the Council of Ephesus, Jesus' birth really was the birth of God. Not, not, Not the beginning of God. Not the beginning of God, but the birth of the God-man, Jesus. And likewise, the council declared, 
If anyone divides in the one Christ, he's one person joining word and flesh only by a conjunction and not rather a coming together in a union by nature. Let him be anathema. In other words, they also asserted that at Jesus' conception, God the Son actually became flesh, uniting himself fully with human nature, not not just in a co-joining of the two, like in a pantomime horse. And in the end, this third council deposed Nestorius and declaring him a heretic. But were they right? Well, when we look at the scriptures, I think we can say that once again, they were. Because in John 1.14, we read that the word became flesh. The word became flesh. So the two natures became one thing, that is one person. Jesus didn't consist of two persons, but one. And that's exactly why, as we read the scriptures, uh, Jesus always refers to himself as as I, not we. Because Jesus understood himself to be one person and not two. That's why we we don't hear him say, we are the light of the world. No, no, no. He says, I am the light of the world. Nor do we hear him say, um, We are the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through us. No, he says, I am and me. And so, yes, it's clear that the Council of Ephesus was right in rejecting the teachings of Nestorius and asserting that Jesus is one person. But it meant that that question of how Jesus could be at the same time truly God and truly human remained. And it led to the next wrong answer that would be addressed at the fourth major church council, the final one for today, at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. Now, this council was called to deal with the teaching of a bloke named Eutyches. Eutyches was a church leader and, again, one of the good guys. He had vehemently opposed the teachings of Nestorius, at the third council. But again, he ended up responding with, a, with a, an equally wrong, opposite view. Eutyches taught that far from Jesus' humanity and divinity being completely separate, that they were in fact fused together into one single nature. Eutyches' view of Jesus kind of reminds me a bit of the nature of a mule. You know, know, where you have a horse and a donkey. And they come together to form a mule. The two natures fusing together to become one. Well, for Eutyches, the person of Jesus Christ was the result of God and humanity fusing together to become one. But notice that if you cross a horse with a donkey, the outcome is neither a horse nor a donkey. It is rather a third thing, a mule, a different entity altogether. And it was for this reason that the Council of Chalcedon opposed Eutyches 
accusing him of mixing Jesus' deity and humanity and in the end making Jesus a kind of mongrel. A third thing. They recognised that if either Jesus' humanity or divinity underwent any change at the incarnation, that he would no longer be truly human or truly God. And so in the end, the council declared that Christ is made known in two natures, without confusion and without change. That is, when Jesus' human nature and divine nature united in Mary's womb, they remain distinct, each one retaining its own individual properties, neither nature changed by the other. Jesus is one person with two natures, 100% man and 100% God. But was the Council of Chalcedon correct in its ruling? Well, we don't have to spend too much time here, do we? Because considering everything we've already seen today with regards to what the Bible says about Jesus being truly human and truly God, rather than some third thing, yes, it's abundantly clear that the Council of Chalcedon also got it right. And so it was that by the mid-5th century, the Christian church had staved off a number of false doctrines concerning the person of Jesus Christ and, cons- and secured four fundamental truths concerning him. Those being that Jesus is truly God, against Arius, and that Jesus is truly human, against Apollinaris, with the two natures indivisibly united in the one person, against Nestorius, and the two natures united without being confused or changed, against Eutyches. Not that these early church leaders were ever trying to to fully explain the nature of Jesus Christ. Now, they they, they knew that that would be an attempt to, to comprehend the incomprehensible. The fact is, the incarnation is a mystery that we'll no doubt continue to explore throughout eternity. But as the four major heresies arose, the early church was forced to clarify what the Bible actually said on these matters. And what they left for us were the boundary markers that mark out the territory we need to stay within as we think about the person of Jesus Christ. Such that whenever we hear something said, or whenever we think something about Jesus, that is contrary to any one of these fundamental truths, then we can be sure that we have stepped outside the boundaries of truth and into the territory of mistaken identity. And that little heresy bell inside our heads ought to be ringing, ding, 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 ding. But perhaps it is that the only thing inside your head right now is the question, who cares? <laughs> who cares? I mean, these, these debates, they're, they're nothing but ancient history. They're so remote. Nothing but obscure philosophical arguments. Who cares? 
Well, friend, the short answer to that question is you should. I should. We should all care about this stuff very, very much. See, friend, it's true that at one time or another, we've all been involved in a nasty case of mistaken identity, whether it be getting someone's name wrong or uh, putting our arm around the wrong person. But the simple fact is, none of the consequences can ever be as bad as getting Jesus' identity wrong. The fact is, if any one of these four heresies had won the day, it would have been a distorted picture of Jesus that would have been handed down to you and to me. And we'd be following a very different Jesus today. A very wrong Jesus. But throughout this period of history, the Holy Spirit, he patiently enabled the early church to get its mind clear on who Jesus really is that they might hand down to us a true picture of him. And for, for that, we ought to be so very, very grateful. I mean, think about it for a moment. Think about if the Jesus we know weren't really God. Like, for example, what difference would it make to our understanding of a verse like John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. How would our understanding of a verse like that change if Jesus were nothing more than just some super creature sent by God rather than God himself? Surely it makes a world of difference. What great love what unspeakable commitment God has shown the people of this world in sending us his one and only divine son. It's an extraordinary thought. Or consider John 1.14 where we read that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory. Whose glory do we see in Jesus? The glory of a mere creature? Oh no, friends. In Jesus, we see the glory of God himself. Because of Jesus, we're not down here wondering if there really is a God somewhere out there. And if so, what is he really like anyway? We're not left wondering. Because 2,000 years ago, God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. We have seen his glory. How amazing is that? Or imagine for a moment if Jesus weren't really human. But just God pretending to be human. Think of a command like the one we read in 1 John 2.6. Where whoever claims to live in Jesus must walk as he did. Are you kidding me? We're going to walk, we're going to live like God? 
How on earth could we ever possibly be expected to follow his example? In fact, how could we human beings ever truly identify with Jesus in any real, intimate kind of way if he is merely God-transcendent? But no, friends, the truth is God became one of us. He walked this earth like one of us. He laughed and he loved and he cried like one of us. Like us in every way but sin. We can follow his example because we can relate to him such that we can even call him Our brother. What other religion in the world makes a claim like that? Well, consider what difference it makes that Jesus is both truly God and truly human at the same time. Hebrews 2, 17 shows us Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. What difference does it make that Jesus is both God and man at the same time? It means he now stands as our merciful And faithful high priest, representing us before his father. He's full of mercy. Because you see, he's experienced the same things we do. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be disappointed. He knows what it's like to be mocked, teased. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be the victim of injustice. And so when we go through these things... We now know that there is a God in heaven who gets it. He's not far off and uninvolved. We can never complain that God doesn't know what we're going through. Because Jesus has experienced it firsthand. And now he comes to our aid as our sympathetic high priest... Oh, friends, how that thought ought to cause us to pour out our hearts to God in prayer. But notice here that because Jesus is both fully human and fully God, he's also able to save sinners like us from the flames of hell. 
because it says that he became like us, that he might make atonement for our sins. See, only a a fully divine and a fully human saviour could ever represent both sides and reconcile us to one another. He had to be perfect God in order to provide the sinless sacrifice. And he had to be human in order to take our place on the cross we deserved. Only a Jesus like that, friends, could save us from an eternity in hell. And so, yeah, friend, I hope you can see that these debates surrounding the true identity of Jesus Christ, they're not just dusty relics, are they? Obscure philosophical arguments. Rather, they preserved for us the awesome truths regarding the person of Jesus Christ. Truths that we ought to cherish. Truths that ought to fill our hearts with joy and peace and love and devotion. Because, friends, Jesus wasn't just a super creature sent from God. Nor was he just God pretending to be human. He wasn't part God and part man or a fusion of the two. No, he was truly human and truly divine. The unique God-man. That's the true Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. What a saviour. Let's pray. Our Father, the, uh, we want to thank you so very, very much for the great diligence and uh, the care of the early church in handing down to us a true picture of your son, Jesus. Thank you that in him uh, we have the perfect saviour, one who shows us what you're like and shows us the love and commitment you have for us. Uh, thank you that in Jesus we have a brother who understands our weaknesses, who cares, and who is able to save us from our sin. Oh Lord, uh, we we marvel at the great mystery of Jesus, the the God-man, and pray that it would fill our hearts with with joy and hope and uh, with a longing to serve and worship him. In our Saviour's name we pray. Amen.